0: In this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Barry Uphoff, founder and managing partner of Martis Capital. We're going to dive deep into his life and career, what it's like starting a firm from scratch, and a whole lot more topics. Barry, let's just kind of get the high level first on Martis before we rewind a lot and just kind of get your your life story.
1: Look, Martis has been in existence for about uh, 10 years. We uh, were originally seeded by uh, Capricorn Investment Group, which is Jeff Skull's family office uh, here in the Palo Alto area. Uh, we've always had a focus on, on healthcare, healthcare services, healthcare IT, and some more consumer oriented things. Um, you know, initially, uh, probably more uh, family office backing, but as we've migrated now, uh, investing out of our third fund, uh, just over a billion and a quarter of total money in the ground. Uh, we've migrated some traditional institutional investors uh, like uh, universities, endowments, um, large institutions from New York City and the West Coast and and the like. But uh, still have a lot of the great uh, families as uh, as investors and uh, and great partners.
0: Cool. Well, let, let's rewind and yeah. hear your story. Grown up, w- where are you from? And just you know, let's. I mean, who were you in high school? Who were you in middle <laughs> school? Let's go all the way back. <laughs> So given the Wayback Machine, look,
1: I, I was born and raised in a, a small town in Nebraska when, when I was uh, growing up there. I thought it was from a big city. It was the seventh largest city in Nebraska at about 15,000. Uh, I soon realized later in life that that wasn't such a big city. Uh, you know, I, I, we did a lot of things in, in Nebraska. We loved football. We did a lot of sports and and such, uh, I, I did. Unfortunately, I lost my father and grandfather at a pretty early age. I was I was nine, and I think that created a sense of uh, responsibility and needing to step up uh, within the family. Uh, it also uh, created a situation where I leaned a lot towards uh, role models. My um, uh, I had a, a, a taekwondo instructor who was very instructive and just a, tradition, a terrific person uh, in my life. Uh, I ended up being a second degree black belt by age 15. That was important. That kept me off the streets. Uh, and then I just engaged a lot in, in working in various jobs. Um, one in particular, I remember one summer I was working for a construction company. All summer probably earned maybe three or $4,000 for hard work shuttling concrete. And along the way, one of the coworkers uh, said, I've got a Toyota Land Cruiser I want to sell. And I made him a low offer, fixed the Toyota Land Cruiser up over the summer, had good fun in it on the river, and, uh, and then got an offer about four months later in a, a dishwashing job I had at a steakhouse. And I more than doubled my money in that. And I thought, but that's <laughs> interesting. You know, I, I worked all summer breaking my back. Uh, versus I invested in this in this Toyota Land Cruiser and, uh, you know, made almost as much money doing that and had a lot of fun. <laughs> so I think, I think that planted a little bit of a, a seed, right, for building things and uh, mixed with that Midwestern mentality of just hard work and, and such was a nice combination.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, there are three directions we can go with this, but I'll, let's so, rewind a little bit, or, or let's go back to the point about, you know, with okay. your Uh, dad and your grandfather in that summer at nine, you're like, I went through a similar thing with my dad passed junior year going into college. And then my brother passed a couple of years later, both from brain tumors. And that just had a profound impact in, I think how I was approaching life. And honestly, like growing up, my, my, my dad was a pilot uh, for the airlines and like college was paid for. And then that, that episode, I mean, that, occurrence junior year just completely changed um, how I looked at life, and I had two jobs starting that, that year and school, but it, like, how, how did that impact you? I mean, what was the family dynamic with your mom, and did you have other siblings, and what was that kind of like? Yes, yeah, so I, I had an
1: older sister, but she had just uh, graduated high school, so really it was just myself and, and my mom, and I think there was a big uh, responsibility for looking after her, the household. Uh, look, I always loved math and science. So one of the things that this triggered was a, uh, a focus on becoming a physician and, and trying to help others maybe who's, uh, uh, who, who suffered from, from cancer. So I, I always wanted to be a physician from a pretty early age. And, uh, and, and that led me ultimately to, to Johns Hopkins to study uh, biochemistry there. But uh, it certainly instilled a, a work ethic uh, uh, in me, uh, a curiosity around science and, uh, and really just, a, you know, an interest in becoming a, a physician at a pretty early age. Uh, I, I, did, uh, I did have a good, I really enjoyed my time at Johns Hopkins It introduced me to, my, me to lacrosse, which would have been a great sport to play. You know, we, we had a lot of, Nebraska was a lot of football and wrestling, Uh, which was good fun but this game of lacrosse was was exciting when I saw it and and ultimately was able to hand that to my uh uh, three sons uh, who played college lacrosse
0: when you're doing taekwondo were you doing sparring um I did I did a fair amount of years in jujitsu which is kind of a you know a different different sport um but like how what was it like you know you're doing it what through like nine years old through 15 Yes, a lot. A lot of sparring, a lot of
1: tournaments. You know, my first exposure and, and, and travels were really uh, because of Taekwondo. Uh, I um, worked hard at it was lucky enough to be uh, nationally ranked in my teenagers. So traveled a lot to tournaments, uh, sparring, you know, uh, forms for testing, breaking boards and such so it was, um, you know, that was also a very good thing for just all around uh, discipline and, and keeping oneself busy, you know, staying out of trouble. Um, uh, you know, I would say, you know, additionally, I developed a love for uh, for motorcycles you know, as, a, as a kid. So those were always fun to play around with growing up in, in Nebraska on a, in a rural setting. You can just ride a little dirt bike uh, wherever you want to go. And and dirt uh, you know, dirt's certainly a little bit softer than than concrete.
0: <laughs> so what uh, let's kind of bridge the gap between johns hopkins and biochemistry to what you're doing now i mean what, what was your first job coming out of college
1: yeah. you know, Sometimes a path, it feels like you, you, could, you could create a, a path where it looks pretty disconnected, but then sometimes you look back 10, 20 years and it all seems to flow together. Uh, studied biochemistry at Johns Hopkins, uh, was a great uh, institution, got to do uh, research with Nobel Prize winners, uh, was very much on the track for medical school, actually got accepted to, to Johns Hopkins in my junior year uh, to, uh, to attend their medical school. But then about that time, the president of the university came to me and said, you know, with your uh, academic and athletic background, you, you ought to apply for this uh, Rhodes Scholarship. And I didn't know much about the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, I said, let me research a little bit and, and study uh, what it's all about. At that point, I'd never traveled outside the United States, you know, as a junior, senior year in, in college. And look, it looked like a great opportunity. You know, my life had been heavily science oriented. Uh, never been outside the United States. I saw it was going to add a couple years to uh, to uh, to education, but the opportunity to uh, to go to England, study something completely different, uh, was uh, was appealing. So, uh, applied for that scholarship. was lucky lucky enough to be accepted, and studied law uh, at Oxford for about two years. You know, during that period, uh, I think I started to talk with quite a few people, and there were a lot of changes going on in healthcare and. Uh, many physicians and other business leaders said, you know, you could probably have a greater impact on people and lives pursuing a, a business path in healthcare. So uh, I deferred uh, medical school one more year as I went to work for Booz Allen and Hamilton in their healthcare practice out of Chicago. That was my first, uh, first job. Uh, And at the same time, I enrolled in uh, full-time business school at the University of Chicago. I I really wanted to immerse myself in in one year to see what is this business track like, you know, uh, having been so science and academic oriented. And look, I ended up loving it. And so after a year, uh, passed on medical school, uh, finished up my MBA at the University of Chicago and and continued the trajectory at at Booz Allen.
0: How did you do Booz? Allen, as well as B-School at the same time? I just worked really hard.
1: You know, <laughs> one of these things I really did. You know I, 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 you know, I remember asking Booz Allen, hey, are you guys okay if I do this MBA? And they said, look, we're fine with you doing that, but if your work starts to suffer, we're gonna ask you to pull back. And uh, so I just, I was very heads down, uh, worked, worked hard in between travels and, and found a way to make it work uh, in a two year period of time. Um, actually, uh, you know, looking back, I think it was something that the two went together very well. You know, I'd never had any formal uh, business education. So uh, having this uh, Booz Allen as real world uh, education day to day, coupled with the, the textbook stuff, the, the two went together very well. And maybe it was you know one and one equaled, uh, from an effort standpoint, maybe it only required one and a half uh, times. So, so the two did, did go together uh, quite well. Um, you know, Continuing on, after about, after about three and a half years at Booz Allen, there were uh, a few folks from Booz Allen uh, and a couple other consulting firms who said, let's, let's start a new consulting firm. Let's start a consulting firm. And mind you, this was the early nineties that resides at the intersection of business strategy and technology and uh, was lucky enough to form and be a founding principal in a firm called Diamond Technology Partners. Um, That firm was backed by a VC firm, and as as partners, we each wrote a check to help start the business as well. Um, That was a big step out for me. My role there was to lead the healthcare practice uh, as well. And a fabulous experience. You know, we we grew the firm from about a dozen to um, you know to hundreds of employees uh, and an IPO in a period of about seven years. So that was a, a tremendous education uh, in founding a business, the role that uh, venture capital can play. You know, in a company, and you know, along the way, I did quite a few projects consulting for. Uh, private equity firms like Madison Dearborn, uh, Carlisle, Trivest, and others on due diligence. And I always said to myself, you know, look, I, I was not going to leave Diamond for another consulting firm, but this notion of building businesses was exciting. And, uh, and ultimately, I did get a few uh, offers from, from private equity firms to, uh, you know, to join them. I think at that time, it was a little bit atypical, my background. I think the, the typical background then was investment banking, then private equity. So the jump from consulting to private equity was a little bit unique, uh, but I think worked worked well for me and, and working and partnering with companies and entrepreneurs.
0: Let's kind of go over to the Marta story now, like where... What's the, what is the founding story of Martis, and you know why did you decide to start the fund? What was it like, you know, when you're just getting it off the ground?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we uh, we founded Martis with uh, a viewpoint of there's an opportunity to partner with entrepreneurs, and uh, partnership can mean a lot of things. It, you know, in our view, a lot of it was bringing that consulting approach. Uh, to working with executives and entrepreneurs. You know, many times, so many times in consulting, you're just you're being helpful, you're giving advice, and, and bringing that flavor into finance where many times it can be a long dating period before you make an investment in a company. You know, we've had situations where uh, one of our first investments, I first met the entrepreneur at Trivest in uh, around 2003. And you know, he was an individual who did not want to sell a, cons- a control stake in his business, but he knew we could add great value. So uh, coming back to Martis, you know that partnership approach, knowing and helping him for a period of time with advice uh, for many years, and then being flexible. You know, he did not want to sell a control position. And one of the things at Martis we wanted to make sure that we were doing from day one is being flexible with uh, doing minority investments as well. You know That's something that um, that uh, many times is a better solution for entrepreneurs where they don't want to take all their chips at the, off the table, but they know they could use a hand, right? They know they could use a hand with capital, maybe with banking relationships, adding people to their business. And many entrepreneurs are sort of one-armed paper hangers. They're doing it all. And if you can build up that trust, I would not.
0: I would not know what that's like at all. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. That may not work these days. But what are paper hangers? Uh, maybe one-handed coders or something is a better. Oh no! Approach. I mean, from
0: the entrepreneurial side, very familiar with the pain of that. <laughs>
1: <I'm a small laughs> yeah. Well, you know, some of these, some of these folks, you just you, you develop relationships with them, and you help them along the way. And when the time comes, and it will come for these entrepreneurs who've never taken outside capital, where they feel like, gosh, I could really use some capital now. You know, hopefully you're you're the first person they want to call. And you know, so that enables again coming back to Martis, I would say we tend to be more value-oriented investors. You know, we don't want to pay a, a top price, but we want to pay a fair price. We want to pay, pay a fair price for uh, the work that we're, we're going to be doing with those companies because. Look, many of these businesses, if, if they haven't had um, uh, traditional outside money in them, you know, maybe they haven't invested in, in much in, in people, in technology, in an infrastructure, and putting a lot of those, those aspects into place uh, is, is hard work. It's a, it's a heavy lift. And uh, that's something that we don't shy away from at Mardis. Uh, we like to um, spend a lot of time with, with that lift, with that playbook. And you know, in doing so, we think we're building something of, of greater value uh, during our ownership period. What so ideally, yes, yeah, sorry, Jordan, please go ahead. Well,
0: oh, what does Martis mean?
1: Martis. the name itself, when uh, we, uh, we create the firm, we were trying to come up with a name. And all the names and ideas we had, it's amazing how everything seems to be taken uh, as firms register. You know, in the early days, uh, we had a team offsite in the, uh, in the Sierra mountains, uh, particularly in the, in the Martis Valley. So, uh, Martis actually refers to a geography, uh, in the Sierra. It's not too far from Truckee. There's the Martis Valley. There's the Martis Creek Martis peak. It's just this, this whole area. And, and, uh, so you guys
0: uh, looked outside the window and said, "I think we'll just call it something." Okay, Martis Capital. Done. Let's just call
1: it Martis Capital. It's pretty simple. You know, you can pronounce it a whole lot better. Uh, you know, unlike my <laughs> you guys, my we have last more name.
0: important things to discuss here than our name. Get, let's look outside. There we go. Let's move there it on. it is. Right. It's mountains.
1: <laughs> it's rivers. It's streams. Right. You know, it's that's that's very nice. So that that's where the Martis name uh, came from, and nobody had taken that. So yeah, so we jumped on it. Right, that, that's why we <laughs> jumped on it, and uh, and and we later found out it lends itself nicely to a website where you can throw in a lot of lakes, rivers, and streams, and so forth
0: as well. <laughs> um, yeah. So now that you're on Fund Three, you know, let's rewind to the you know when you were raising Fund One, and you know what was that like when you were just getting it off the ground and doing Fund One, and you know what advice do you have to the emerging managers out there? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Doing fund one, look, find yourself a great partner. You know, we, we were lucky enough to have that in Jeff skull and Capricorn, uh, tremendous partners. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, they made a big commitment to our first fund and, uh, we're flexible, accommodative. Uh, we, we use their office space for our first fund. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a gr- it was a great way to get started. And, you know Jeff is a, an amazing person. He's done tremendous things in the world. And that helped a lot as well. As we now talked with other families, I think that that uh Jeff's seal of approval was a big plus. Um, and you know for migrating from fund that's kind of fund one. You know, so fund one, you want to you want to have let's we'll dive
0: a little bit more into that. I mean what are some yeah. of like the more second or third level you know things that are not um, maybe as obvious, like find a great partner, like, yes, find someone who has a billion dollars yeah. and invest in the fund. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, let me, let me, okay. But yeah, let I me, mean, let's, let's go back to that point or what are some of the, what are some, of, what's like some of the scar tissue from raising the first fund um, yeah. or not just raising the fund, that part, but right. also just operating at that stage of the business?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, look, one, one of the things, just going a little bit deeper on, on those partners, you, know, you, you want to make sure that, um, especially on a first fund, you're, you're going to have people ask for, for discounts, right? People are going to want discounts on, on, on fees and on, uh, on carry and such. And I, you know, look, one advice I would say is, is you know, try hard not to give up too much in those. And I think some of your best investors will realize to, to be fully aligned. Um, that's, uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to be penny wise and pound foolish. So I know there's going to be a big, um, there's going to be a big push in funding the, the first dollars to get those dollars raised, um, and, uh, and get the dollars in the door, but, you know, don't sell your short with giving big discounts on that. And, and frankly, you want to make sure you have people who, you're aligned with. And if you're making money for them, then you know you as a team, you know, should be making money as well. Uh, I think in terms of the team, you know, make sure you're 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 working with people that, um, you know, that are nicely complimentary uh, to you, you know, people who've come from similar walks of life that can maybe compliment you in, in other ways. Getting that team right out of the get-go is, is really important because in the first fund, you're going to be working together, and if you go from fund one to fund two, and you have a lot of um, transition and team members, you know that can be difficult. It's difficult to, to affect, and it's difficult to explain to your investors because investors like to see consistency. And then last, I would say, you know, in terms of building out the portfolio, really think a lot about portfolio construction. You know, I think a lot of private equity firms. Um, think about uh, investing in, in businesses without thinking too much. I did spend a, a couple of years with a, with a credit-oriented hedge fund between TriVest and Capricorn. Hedge funds think a lot about portfolio construction and companies, so they're not all correlated. Maybe they have different times of duration and exposure and, and length of ownership. And I think that's a plus you know, for getting from fund one to fund two. Because when you go to fund two, some of your fund one investors are going to, they're going to want to see some realizations in what you've done, you know, so not having everything invested in your fund, that's going to take five to 10 years, uh, until you realize it, I think is important. And, you know, we, we build a portfolio that, that had some opportunities, uh, with earlier timeframes to realization and some that were a little bit longer. Uh, and I think that was a nice, you know, bridge, right, for the folks in Fund One who could see, all right, th- this works. Uh, they're returning capital uh, before they're out to to raise the next fund.
0: So um, I don't know how many of those tips are uh, are from mistakes or that you, or you didn't want them right. But let's like, let's address like somewhat. Of what are some of the early mistakes you guys made in? Uh, in fund one, either on, uh, on the portfolio side, on the team side, on just how to run it on the fundraising side. Like what are some of the mistakes that you made that people can learn from?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the things is just be um, specialization and being focused is important. In our first fund, uh, we with a number of family offices as, as background, our mandate, we had to be a little bit broader. And what I mean by that is we did some uh, high yield debt investing, kind of special situations, uh, growth and buyouts, and a couple of situations that were more VC in nature. Now, uh, I think family offices that works, their breadth of their mandate can support that. But I think at the same time, you know, that can be difficult to execute. You know, we've got one investment that we've been invested in now for, uh, you know, for about a decade. And uh, they're doing great, getting fantastic traction now, but the venture
0: investments can take a long time. Yeah. So Do you you think that is a function of your money came from somebody who said, Barry, you and the team are really smart. You've done debt, you've done venture, you've done growth, you've done buyout, just go off and make more money. And you're like, yeah, full, fine, we'll do everything. And that was a reflection of, you know, your investor your background, do you think that if you said, if you push back to you know, Jeff and said, hey, we're gonna do this, buyout, healthcare, and we're gonna do this really well. Did you have that, um, those thoughts from the beginning? Like, did you want to specialize, but you're pulled from Jeff and the other investors?
1: You know, I think uh, it was a combination of, if you look at my background, a little bit of debt investing at Silverpoint, growth and growth and buyout investing at TriVest and then being out here on the West Coast where we founded the firm in Palo Alto, where there's a lot of venture capital type investment opportunities. It was probably a mix of, of all of my past and some of the team members past where you say, you know, I think we can make money across the board here and you get that support from your investors. I think, you know, again, to your question on, on realizing some things, um, you know, focus is good. And I think focus has only gotten more important in private equity investing as it's gotten more competitive. And you have to specialize a little bit. You know, it's, it's a little bit like maybe a freshman or sophomore year where you can be an undeclared major. And then, you know, as you move on, you know, declare one. Uh, that doesn't fit well with my background where I was biochemistry day one and very focused. <laughs> But I can imagine, you know, that's a that's reasonable advice that I would give my kids. Like, I think maybe, (laughs) you know, it's okay to be undeclared and then declare. Right. And we were given the reins and the flexibility to do that because we had a lot of great investors. Um, But I think in hindsight, maybe focusing a little bit more out of the gate, I I would probably give that advice to people. Right. I, I think that that you know, to be great in all three of those areas, source great opportunities in all three of those areas is uh, is, is hard. It's probably better to focus a little bit. And then as you looked ahead to, to grow the firm and as we were to tr- attract institutional investors, you know, they want to see more focus, right? They want to, their portfolio construction as an asset manager is such that they want to pick their top VC investors. They want to pick their top, debt investors, they want to pick their top growth and buyout investors. So we did make the focus from fund one to fund two, uh, with, uh, focusing on, on, on growth and buyout, which, which was where we felt the, the bulk of the strength of the team was and, uh, where we could be most successful.
0: That's really interesting. Um, how, how do you think that you have changed as a, um, as running a firm from Fund One version of you versus Fund Three version of you, and you know what did you wish that you would have known back then, almost from a managerial perspective or other things that are you know maybe not some of the points that we just covered.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds it's probably an often used word, but uh, you don't think about it maybe until you've been through something for ten years. But delegation is probably another one and, and building out a team, right? I mean, I think about fund one and uh, I, I was really trying to do a lot if not uh, all of it, right? From investor relations, sourcing opportunities, building the companies, um, sitting on the boards and exiting the companies, right? And that, that's a lot to bite off. And I think you know, a lot of the questions we got from potential investors in future years was, gosh, it looks like Barry, you're sitting on about 60% of the boards. It looks like you've sourced maybe 60% of the opportunities. Um, How are you gonna grow and develop with other people? So uh, we really did add some uh, terrific people uh, to the equation. Uh, Shahab Vagafi, uh, fellow partner from uh, Carlisle. He brought on uh, Mario Moreno, uh, who was also at Carlisle. Uh, we recruited, I got introduced to a fellow Owen Davis here out of San Francisco from Francisco Partners. And, you know, with that, if you looked at the difference between fund one and fund two was sort of delegation and sharing and responsibility, you know, those individuals, it it really migrated a lot, you know, to them, to those three with sourcing, sitting on the boards and exiting. And now that we're in fund, fund three, as I look at that, you know, they're really doing the bulk of a lot of those activities, uh, which is great. Uh, I spent a lot of time with investors. Um, I spent a lot of time still with portfolio companies and sourcing, but it's not like it wasn't fund one, right? Where maybe it was 50 to 60% of, of everything going on.
0: Yeah. Um, well, on the similar theme of kind of Big lessons either from what you did right or things that didn't go so well maybe kind of zooming back at your whole career I mean you you do see a lot of sunshine and rainbows here and everything has worked really really well but like what are some of the maybe the more difficult moments that you really grew from and kind of what were they how did they how did they shape you yeah I think
1: um you know on the uh on the on the delegation front i'll continue on that theme a little bit and and maybe you know
0: shift over to the is that a recurring theme
1: <laughs> it, it is a common theme you know i think going going back you just you know when, when you know as a as a kid uh in a very very humble backgrounds where we did everything right and as a kid it was my grand my mother and i we mowed the lawn we we did everything you know i my advice one of the things i would say is i, I kind of carried that forward and even through the my thirties and forties of working in these firms, you know, I would still mow the lawn, you know, do everything, clean the pool, do all these activities, uh, A, because I could, B, you know, I enjoyed it. It was a little therapeutic uh, and, uh, and, you know, see it save money, right? So, you know, uh, I would say, you know, don't be so cheap, you know, spend some of that money along the way to, to make your, your life easier, uh, to have more time with your family and uh you know and do those things right i think uh and i think that can sort of cut across the board I'm, i shared some of the personal stories there around around the home uh of delegating some of those activities or, or just you know getting folks to help you if you will uh you know but uh i think i think professionally uh, as well right just uh you know taking a little that's bit that's of time great.
0: Let's go back to that point about delegation. And it's it's interesting because I think it does come from that early experience when your father and grandfather passed and it was on you. And it was you and your mom at home, your sister was off at what college? And it was on you to do everything. And it's interesting because in one part, you're at where you're at, you did the career track, the education track, because you learned how to do everything and do it well. And then on the other side of that, you did everything well. You can't scale a business if you are doing everything well, as opposed to that, uh, to growing the team. So it's really interesting just to see, and almost like the self-awareness in our own journey. And I have a much less successful business, a much smaller business, but I had the exact same problem with delegation. In like, yeah, guess what? Other people can write really damn good LinkedIn content. Like, I'm not the only one in our team who can write content. Like, brilliant really moment. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, no, exactly. Look, I, I remember a, a period in, in sort of around fun too, where uh, I broke my collarbone in a biking accident and couldn't travel for a period of time. And, uh, you know, it what, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, right? All of a sudden, other people you see around you step up for you, step up for the team in travel, meeting with companies, filling in for board meetings. And you, and you kind of say, wow, that. Went just fine without me there, right? And that's a that's a that's a learning moment. Um, you know, I think also even in the uh, the pandemic has been a, a bit of a learning moment as well. You know, when we when we were raising our um, when we were raising our first and second funds, a lot of people asked the question, "How does that work with you having a San Francisco and D.C. office?" And I would say, "Look, we use technology. At that time, it was Skype. You know, we do our." meetings every uh, Monday and we're on calls frequently. And whenever we uh, staff an opportunity and in investment, we make sure there's somebody from both San Francisco and DC represented for you know, water cooler chat in each area. And I don't know that folks necessarily bought that. I think the preference at that time was look, have a single office, have everybody from that office and function that way. Yeah, we we felt working with our companies was good to have two office to source and work with those businesses, um, and I think that was a good training for the pandemic. I mean, we we just switched over uh, pretty pretty seamlessly overnight to doing more uh, you know, to doing more meetings, you know, on, online, uh, and doing like what we're doing right here. So I I think, you know, for our next fundraise, I I can't wait. I hope people ask, you know, what about these two offices? And I'll say we were just training for a pandemic. Uh, you you know, I do worry a little bit now about, you know, coming back. You know, I, I do like, uh, I, I like being back in an office. So, um, you know, so I hope, uh, I hope we strike the, the the benefits of both you know of the of the working remote aspect as well as coming into the office you know we uh we haven't quite gotten there yet in san francisco and dc but you know look so i guess that's another lesson learned is you know when, when you get thrown a little bit of a curveball like we did with a pandemic or however just being able to uh, adjust and and tune and you know trying to make some trying to make some lemonade out of lemons
0: I noticed that in your um, in your notes that the team sent that you did a fair amount of work with like Pat Tillman Foundation and Yellow Ribbon Fund and just curious like how did you get started with veteran activities like where does it come from?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So uh the starting point uh, really was uh, uh my father
1: and grandfather were both uh, uh you know involved in the military. Probably knew my grandfathers even more. He was in on a sub in uh uh in, in World War II and just some great, some great stories there. I had cousins in the service. When I was at uh, when I was in Oxford, I had a cousin at Lake and Heath there, which was um about two hours away from Oxford, and I always felt like I could go there and get back to about 50% of America when you got on the, when you got on the base. You know, they had American football, and you could buy American goods and the PX and everything. So, um, you know, so there was always a lot of a lot of um, uh, respect and uh, appreciation uh, for uh, uh, for the military, and 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 that was that was the seeding of it. I mean, look—we've we've hired individuals. Uh, we have a CEO um, who's very involved uh, with the military, and John Bardis and starting the Wounded Warriors program. Uh, Pat Tillman is a is a wonderful organization. Uh, it's just uh, you know, it's very humbling to see uh, every year when we select the um, you know the Pat Tillman uh, uh, scholarship recipients, just what what they've done and and accomplished. Um, this is probably an incorrect thing to say, and I'm sure we'll get it edit, edited out. But uh, someone once described the Pat Tillman Scholars as, as Rhodes road scholars with balls. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> no, I,
0: we're uh, keeping that one in.
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> actually, uh, I'll give full credit where credits do that. That was uh, that was Marie Tillman who said that, and. You know, dang, that's pretty accurate. I, I really love that that description. It's amazing what these people have done for our country. They're smart. They work hard, and uh, uh, we like to surround ourselves and, and get people like that to work in our organization. So, so that that's been a big piece of of what we do um, in uh, in our daily lives and work.
0: Um, well, let's kind of shift over to you know you you've, you're so deep into the healthcare sector and. You know, I, I'm curious more because we you know, both had family that passed from cancer and I was wondering, like, you know, what do you think are some of the big breakthroughs that you're going to see in cancer research in the next, um, maybe the next three to five years? Uh, what are the big things that uh, scientists are working on from cancer yeah. research? Um, you know, my, my dad and brother passed from brain tumors, like brain cancer, but mm. I, I don't even know where to start with that. Right. And, you know, to be honest, like after that happened, I just blocked it out of my life and I'm going to I'm, I'm going to do everything else in my mm. life. But I, you know, I'm 36 now and stuff happens in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. So I'm just curious. I want to re-engage with that. And I'm just curious So you, you cover the healthcare sector so, uh, deeply just where are we going in the next couple of years? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I will say
1: one of the things that I'm excited about. My grandfather died of pancreatic cancer, which is uh, which is a very tough one because you know it, it's tough first of all to uh, detect, right? It's very you know it's pretty far within the organs, and and by the time it's usually detectable, it, it's it's you know usually too late, right? That's a that's a tough one. Um, What I'm excited about, and ironically next week, I'm gonna be at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, at the Buffett Cancer Center, um, talking with some folks doing some interesting research in in pancreatic cancer and such. What what I'm excited about is a lot of the whole blood analysis. And I think this is something we're gonna see a tremendous amount of in in future years. I mean, look, to diagnose a lot of diseases, we've used uh, imaging and other techniques to look in and to see what's going on. Um, if you get to that next level, you know, the blood and lymphatic system is basically the, the, the river, if you will, to, that carries around broken down cells within the body. And, um, you know, to go into uh, blood, for instance, whole blood analysis and, and look to see what is in that whole blood, right? Because theoretically, you should be able to find broken down uh, DNA or cell bits of like a pancreatic tumor, and, and detect that early on. I think, I think that's gonna be a big area of development in the next uh, 10 years. Um, I was lucky enough to work with a fellow, uh, Dr. Wayne Ryan, who founded Streck Laboratories out of Omaha, probably the smartest man I've ever known in, uh, in hematology. And this was an area that, that he was very interested in. And you see that, uh, I think, carry on a little bit at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Uh, but that's that's probably the area that I have a, a lot of interest and hope for, right? Yes. Is a non-invasive way, look into the blood, see what's floating around in the body, and what diseases might be might be uh, uh, developing. Um, you know, in my own really- case, I will say I I you know look with a father who had pancreatic cancer and and got into the colon. Uh, I got my first colonoscopy age thirty. Okay. And it wasn't, look, the doctor looked at me and said, are you crazy? You know, that's something you don't do until you're 50. And I said, so I, you know, I had a father or grandfather who passed away from something in that, in that area. And I'll just pay for this. You know, I'll spend the $1,500 and have a colonoscopy.
0: It that's was interesting that you mentioned that because uh, and, when we were going, I, when my dad died of a brain tumor, my brother died of a brain tumor. So therefore, what am I going to do? Go to the doctor. Hey, should I get a scan? Uh, insurance doesn't cover that. Insurance doesn't cover what? You don't have a pre-existing condition. I just told you that my granddad and brother died of brain tumor. I think there might be a good case here for me to get a scan.
1: Right, right, right. Well, you know, and that's part of the challenge of the healthcare system in America. It's much more reactive than proactive. And hopefully that's something that changes as well. We could do a whole other discussion, you know, just on that. Um but yeah, no, look, I paid for it out of pocket. It was normal at 30. I did it again at 35, it was normal. At 40, it was abnormal. I had two or three polyps, had those removed, and, uh, and then have proceeded to do colonoscopies about every two to three years since then. You know, So who knows, right? I mean, who knows what that would have developed into had I not even had a, a colonoscopy until age uh, 50, which is basically, you know, where guidelines are today uh, when I did have some uh, precancerous polyps as they call them, you know, at age 40.
0: Yeah, well, let's, um, on, on a similar note in the healthcare industry, what do you think is the biggest thing people are not talking about from a, maybe a technology perspective, um, from the, I mean, just, broader, what are some big themes that you have seen that people are just, are not discussing, maybe because of media attention or whatever? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think, uh, well look, I think one that's just starting to get talked about and we're, we're, at the, we're at the beginning of it is is consumerism in healthcare, right? I mean, for so long, it, the view in healthcare was, look, uh, science, healthcare, it's complicated so we can't share this information or uh, we can't be transparent with this pricing. It just costs this, there was this sort of protection around it all the way from you know, the information and the data about the care, sharing of information, um, uh, pricing, transparency, where it was just, it was, it was for lack of better words, sort of protected. Because look, you can't understand it as a lay person, it's just too complicated, so stay out of it. Um, that, is, that, is change, that is changing very rapidly. And you know, consumerism and healthcare, uh, you know, I would say a lot of it, I'll, I'll give credit having a couple of millennials, uh, I'll give credit they're changing it in a great way, right? Because their expectation is transparency, information, instant access, If I can trade stocks on Robinhood and do fine, thank you very much, which I think my sons have done just fine over the last year doing that. Uh, You know, I can understand and make decisions with my healthcare. So uh, tell me the information, show me the cost benefit, uh, give me data on outcomes, give me data on service and quality, and I can make my own decisions. Thank you very much.
0: That's I think it's in the shroud of regulatory privacy, which I understand the reason for that. Um, it, it just makes me also think that when I'm in the doctor's office though, and then I almost want like a doctor's note, like the meeting note, here's what we discuss. Cause this around 37 seconds after that door closes from the doctor's office, mm-hmm. I don't even know what was said. And then, yes. I have no, and then I don't even know where to access this. And on on a mobile basis, on desktop, et cetera, across doctors, across, you know, five, 10 years. So I think that to your point with, you know, our generation and people in their 20s, uh, 30s and 20s, now the expectation is I'm willing to make this trade-off because I want all this from transparency. And I'm willing, I think uh, maybe unknowingly willing to take the downside risk of data breaches especially right. in the era of social media, where it's like my whole life is on there. Therefore, right. I don't care if my blood type is on this. And it but I think that the technical side is all gonna be fixed, yeah. the security side.
1: It, it's a great example. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful example, actually, Jordan. I mean, just saying, yeah, look, if somebody had my uh, you know, health CBC blood workup from a year ago, do, do I really care if somebody had my hematocrit? my, I really don't, I I get it why we don't want to share that mother's rules around that. And it's all about trade-offs. And if I could have access and transparency to other things, you know, I'd be willing to forego, you know, that, that other bit. So there's a balance, right? There's, there's a balance.
0: They're going to take that blood and they're going to make like 10 more clones of berries to start ten more viruses. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that. And you'll do see that. him walking down the street one day. <laughs> this has right. been awesome. I, I really appreciate this. This could be part one of a lot of topics. Thanks, Jordan. And and you know, and I I thought of just
1: one other thing I might uh, I might mention there that I thought yeah. about this. So just you know, you'd ask the questions about lesson learned. Um, it, you know, you want to be helpful in what we're doing. And I mentioned how we develop relationships over a period of time. Many times you're working with family-owned businesses. And I will say you have to be careful. Certainly something that I've learned is not to get too close to family dynamics and family situations. Uh, You know, that that can be a a, a tricky one. Um, You can get sucked in too much. You're not a family member. So yeah, that, that, that's certainly one lesson I've learned uh, through through a situation or two uh, over the last decade.
0: Well, I think that's really topical because, you know, how many sponsors and, you know, firms out there say we really want to partner with family owned businesses. And mm-hmm. it, it's it's just a dynamic that comes into it of, of how yeah. do you navigate that effectively to, you know, yes, you care about the heritage, you care about the history, but how do you keep that appropriate distance? Yeah. Professional distance so you could just focus on the task at hand.
1: Yeah. Um, no, that's right. I mean, look, blood, blood is thicker than water. That is very true. So you've got to be careful about that. Um, you know, I know a, a, a very good consultant uh, who would say uh, if he, if somebody doesn't go through succession by age 80, they never will ever. <laughs> And as a result, he will not take clients who are over eighty because they look if they if they haven't gone through a succession by age eighty, it's not going to happen. Right? They're going <laughs> to they're going to go out in another way, and and, and I, it's kind of it's kind of comical. But there's a, an HBO series now that somebody introduced me to called Succession, which is a little bit over the top. But I will say it's it's not it's in around a family dynamic. It's it's not that it's not that far off.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate the time with this, and yeah, looking forward to to getting this out there.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much for your time today, Jordan. Really appreciate it.